I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. It is great to have you, and I've got a hell of a show for you this week. We're going to do a little bit of Devil's Advocate, and we're going to talk about the uncomfortable side of the third side perspective. Then in militant eroticism, that's right, we're going to be joined by a Den Den. We're going to be talking about uh, identity. Should be pretty interesting. And closing out the show is going to be Unorthodoxy with the one and only Witch Zaftig. We're going to be comparing religions here. Luciferianism to Satanism. Uh, before we dive into all that, let me, uh, let me give a quick shout out to all of you. Uh, nine years ago, I started Nine Cents Podcast. It was... Uh, a hell of a journey. And as the years went on, I accumulated, uh, dragged in more and more contributors uh, and more and more interviewees. And what began as me, this simple little solo project of talking about the religion that I love, turned into almost an entity of its own that had its own inertia, its own momentum. And it got to a point where it was just too much for me to handle when I'm trying to still develop my career and take care of my family and such. I ended up stopping Nine Cents after five years, uh, well, going in through your sixth year of uh, production. And then I picked up other projects throughout the way, uh, and I started Speak of the Devil, which lasted for a number of years. And so essentially, for the past nine years, I've been creating satanic content. And if I'm being honest, I would not have continued to create that content if you, the audience, were not there. And one thing that I've found fascinating about the audience is that you shift and you change. New faces come in and old faces go away. Some people tune into every single episode, consuming it almost <laughs> religiously, and other people tune in when they see a topic or an individual on that strikes an interest in them. And there's no right or wrong way to consume any content, and I appreciate every single way that it is consumed. And I have to say a huge thank you to all of you for your continued attention, no matter what project I'm taking on and no matter what form that project takes. It's been a hell of a ride. And so when the anniversary came around for Nine Cents' beginning, how could I, how could I pass it up? Nine years after the beginning of Nine Cents anniversary episode, I had to make it. Uh, so I reached out to a number of contributors, not all of them, but just a few. In truth, I'm hoping, or in the position, I was hoping not to get too many people agreeing to be a part of it, because then the episode gets longer and longer, and you truly cannot consume it all. In this particular case, uh, these two individuals were so wonderfully gracious with their limited time and so I just have to say a quick thank you to Aden and Simony. You guys are fantastic. I truly appreciate you. Uh, I've been going through a lot of crazy stuff lately. My career has been taking off. Uh, my family is growing up. 
uh, and becoming more independent. And so I, I seem to have more and more time uh, to per pursue whatever passions strike my fancy. Sometimes it takes the form of this, and sometimes it's just sitting down and reading a book. Uh, but more going out in the mountains. Whatever the form, I'm always tuned in to what my friends are doing. And right now I have a friend who is incarcerated um, because of a bad choice he made, and now he's suffering for it. And not just by being incarcerated, he's being lambasted by the very psychic vampire that caused him to do what he did. Not to say he's not responsible. He is. And not to belabor the point, but it does tie into this devil's advocate. And so I want to read a poem that he wrote while he was in jail. And at the other side of that, we'll go ahead and you know move on with um, the regular show uh, as planned. So let's do that. Why Make Life Hard by Colin Martin. Life is no easy stroll, I can tell you. The journey can be long, difficult, and rough. So what the hell possesses you to make things impossible? A self-destructive madness must inspire you. There is no reason why this should be tough. Simple logic and reason must have left you. Or maybe it's just that you had none at all. It's truly hard to believe there is sense in your actions. Possibly there is some twisted motive, some mad reasoning. Secretly, you smile when everything crumbles and falls. Your lies and falsehoods are maddening. The twisted tales you create too crazy to be true. Discerning truth and reason impossible from you. The fantasy world you have created and live in is pure poison and has no place in this realm at all. Masochism is fine in the bedroom if you are needy and into that shit. In the real world, there is no useful function except to make others around you purely miserable as you drag them into your self-pitying pit. The simplicity of life is just that. It's simple. From its baseline, though, it's impossible to soar to new heights. However, when you can't even reach the first level, you must be addicted to trouble and strife. It currently shows what a sad, empty shell you call life. I can easily say that I'm done with this lunacy. My head has been twisted and bent more than enough. Without you, my head's clear. I can once again focus, glad to leave behind this warped vision of reality. I'm free to rebuild and learn to grow and fly high. Let's do a... Uh... No devil's advocate, shall we? In nomine de nostris, Thomas Luciferi Excelsior. In the name of Satan, the ruler of the earth, the king. Though I'm an active member, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Welcome to another Devil's Advocate. Today, I want to talk about the uncomfortable side of the third side perspective. It seems that this is one concept that is probably the most shared and um, uh, uh, prevalent satanic concept out there. And yet it is also one of the most misunderstood. Because as with every single Satanist, there seems to be a new third side. And yet, those 
third sides always seemed to drift onto one of the two offered sides that the herd claims to have ownership of. You're right or you're left. You're a Republican or a Democrat. You're a Nazi or you're Antifa. It's always some extreme. You're a conservative or you're a liberal. And yet the reality of mankind is neither of these things. The third side, the uncomfortable third side, is called uncomfortable for a reason. It's because it forces you to not just take your own position of the two choices, but to actively search and understand your opposing views in order to fully understand the situation that you're creating an opinion on. And you will never land on one side or another. If you actually listen to what the other side has to say, if you actually explore those ideas. I champion that I have people who uh, call me uh, conservative and call me liberal that call me a Nazi and call me an Antifa supporter. I like the idea that though I have progressive values as an individual, I can still champion some ideas that are considered conservative. In the same way that I champion the idea of a woman's right to choose to end a pregnancy for whatever reason, I also think that there should be limits on that. And I think if you're going to be responsible and, and start having sex, then you should suffer the consequences of your actions and in some cases, raise the child that you had. Now, those may seem to be opposing views baked into just me. And that's just one of the many situations that we have to examine as individuals. Where do you fall in this line of understanding? And then what are the variables that actually create your position with uh, gun laws, for example. I do not believe there should be any fully automatic firearms in civilians' hands ever because the majority of civilians have no training with them. Now, they can legally obtain some right now and I am all for any civilian owning any single-action revolver or rifle, but fully automatic, even semi-automatic I think are fine, but fully automatic I don't. So am I an advocate of gun rights, or am I a detractor trying to take guns away from everyone? Usually the uncomfortable side comes into play when you have to talk about more socially unacceptable ideas. I was raised in a household with an abused mother. She was battered by my father, her husband, until she finally got the courage to call the police and have him taken away, divorce him, and flee the state. Now, as a result of that, we lived in poverty for a number of years before she met and ultimately married the man that she's still married to today, who raised me. Now, from that position, I am fervently anti-physical abuse. 
systemic physical abuse. However, sometimes, sometimes, everyone needs to be punched in the face. Now, am I advocating random violence? I don't think so. But the truth is, in the same way that uh, through greater magic ritual, some people are dying to be destroyed, some people ask to be punched in the face. Sometimes that's you. Sometimes that's me. Our actions declare our desires. If someone steps to me on the street and starts harassing me, I will do everything I can to move about them peacefully. If they refuse and they just start throwing punches, then I am going to punch back. That's the reality of life. Whether that individual is a man or a woman, if they are attacking me, I will attack them back. That is how I was always raised, and that's how it works. So, do women deserve to be hit? Sometimes. Do I believe that men have the right to abuse women? No. It's uncomfortable to have that opinion. But that's my opinion, based on my life experience. I was dating a woman who would regularly smack me when she got frustrated. Just outright smack me. Why is it okay for her to do that? But if I smacked her back, I'm an abuser. Now clearly, she should be an abuser too because she's smacking me. But it's socially accepted for some women in some cultures to be physically violent, whereas some ethnicities and some sexes cannot. That's the reality of the world we live in. We have these weird um, expectations. We're living in this strange Me Too moment where every action, if it's perceived in a negative light, colors your entire history, your entire life, and you are now that one tiny little action. The complexity of who you are as an individual is gone. You are that one thing. You are an abuser. You are violent. You are sexist. You're racist. Whatever it is, we live in a culture that is so politically correct so as to be hypocritical. It's distilled what is supposed to be an understanding that every individual is complex with complex ideas based on life experience. They're not always right, and some people grow and learn, and some people don't. But we are more than just one expression of ourselves. We are more than one just thought and more than just one idea. I am in a relationship where my wife does the majority of the housework and I do the majority of the yard work. Now, this is a traditional role that I know of from being raised, but it is not the way to be. You have to look and say each individual relationship is different. They, it ebbs and flows. This individual is better at X and that individual is better at Y. And you just fall into whatever pattern suits you as a couple. We can't live in these dichotomies of women are fragile and they need to be protected and they are strong and empowered and they can do whatever they want. Which is it? And is it all women? Or are some women just not capable of doing some things? 
We can't live in a world where a man has to be the protector, the hunter-gatherer, but he has to be sensitive and understanding and completely rational when dealing with every single obstacle that comes in his way. That's not reality. The truth is, we are more than just these black and white established dictates that society or culture has put on us. Now, I've seen this, just as you have, in satanic expressions online, where you have people claiming that uh, the organization, the Church of Satan, is too liberal. Then you have people claiming that the organization is too conservative. Is it possible that there's a third side to that reality? That the administration may hold specific beliefs, but the organization is strong enough in order to allow individual members to exercise their own beliefs without championing them and being an embodiment of them? Is it possible that the organization itself can have no opinion because it is not an entity? It is an organization. It is a construct. It is a legal agreement. Individual members share those ideas. And so if you have an individual member who does not accept the idea that trans people exist, can they be a Satanist? The organization has always supported that idea. Individual members of hierarchy champion the idea of individualism in all of its forms. But some members may have issue with that. Does that mean that they can't be Satanists? No. It just means that they have a different opinion. And does that one opinion then color all of their actions? No. It's just one tiny aspect of who they are as an entire entity. What I've seen in my time as a Satanist is groups of Satanists banding together for whatever cause du jour that they champion and becoming herd-like in the actions of that. And the only recourse of that is to go to an extreme. You're with us or you're against us. When I first started opening my eyes up to other Satanists, I was presented with people that were quite bombastic. Now, some of them are no longer members of the Church of Satan, and some of them are no longer Satanists. Maybe they never were. But the fact that they were given the ability to express their thoughts that were wildly, dramatically different and challenging to the established norms was exciting to me. I never lived in a world where everyone had to see things the same way. I grew up in a household where my family was very, very religious. I was not. I was always focused on me. And so the idea of not always sharing the ideas of those around me, whether it comes to religion, politics, societal norms, whatever, is normal. But that's not the case with a lot of people nowadays. And what infuriates me about all of this is that's not the case with Satanists. They seem to think that third side means they can just take whatever progressive stance or whatever um, conservative stance they want on whatever issue 
and never consider that those who have opposing views are still Satanists or can possibly be right in their own ways. I am for firearms and regulating them heavily. I am pro-choice, but also with regulations. I believe that the government that we have put into place and pay taxes to should take care of its citizens. But I also believe that people have to stand on their own two feet. These are contrasting ideas that exemplify different political and social stances, but they're all wrapped up into the individual. The sigil of Baphomet has its two horns in the air, re representing, as expressed by the doctor in Satan Speaks, uh, the essay Uncomfortable Third Side Perspective, uh, the duality of man, the right and the left perspectives of any issue. But the point going into the ground is the sword in the stone. It is the lightning bolt grounding the Satanist. Allowing us to break free of those two norms and open up those gates of hell in that symboled shape in order to have the opportunity of looking at issues differently. And it's not just Satanists. This is a Satanic podcast, which is why I bring it up. But it is becoming a normal action for people to become so tribal that they forget everything else everything about another person other than that one issue that they take exception to or they champion with. And then they shun everything else. So if I went out today and I punched a baby, <laughs> I would never punch a baby. <laughs> but let's say I did. Every single one of my friends would immediately scorn me. And some of them would immediately forget all the other things that I've done in my life and just see me as a baby puncher. <laughs> and that's it. Now, I should be able to accept the consequences of my actions. Yes. <laughs> but I'm not just a baby puncher. <laughs> Jason Sudeikis probably shouldn't have punched Baby Yoda. I guess that's what I'm getting at. That's what this whole thing is about. Don't punch Baby Yoda. All right, Jason? That's messed up. I actually screamed when I saw that <laughs> in The Mandalorian. Uh, for those of you who don't understand what I'm saying. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk about that. I know I come off as preachy and stuff, but that's kind of the point of this segment. Um, we tend to forget that the uncomfortable side, the third side, is supposed to be uncomfortable. Because it's challenging us as individuals to find it. It's challenging us to hold those ideas and opinions. And what you're probably going to find more often than not, that if you are capable of actually finding a third side you're not going to see the world as so black and white anymore. You're actually going to be a little bit more tolerant of others' perspectives because you're going to have perspective. It sounds simple, but it's not. You can have opinions. Uh, here's one. And we're going to get into this later with uh, uh, unorthodoxy. Is the Church of Satan... And the religion Satanism, as defined in the Satanic Bible, the only version of Satanism? Yes, but no. 
Whether we like it or not, other people are claiming otherwise, and there are movements behind it. Now you can point out how absurd those are, and you can point out the fallacies and the hypocrisy and the joking origin of some of them, but they persist. They are. It's uncomfortable to think that. It's uncomfortable to think that every single thing that we know can change, can adapt. It's uncomfortable, but it's a reality. And if we just live in this black and white world, we're never going to be able to really navigate our way through it. So politically, socially, culturally, religiously, let's be uncomfortable. Let's be okay with being uncomfortable because that's what we're supposed to be because that's the essence of Satanism. That's who and what we are as individuals. That is Satanism. Being uncomfortable with your ideas, finding that third side, challenging yourself, and ever asking in every, every opportunity, why? All right, let's move on to uh, militant eroticism. If you're listening to this, then you probably identify as a Satanist. If, it were to, if I were to say there is no such thing, could you convince me that there is? And does that really matter? Am I obligated to accept your identity as a truth, perhaps a personal truth, whatever that means? Do I have to agree that there is an objective thing, an identity called Satanist that exists without your saying you are one? Identity is a curious thing. However you identify ethnically, religiously, politically, gender-wise, sexuality-wise, human beings have crafted thousands of narratives that have been linked to real events and have become things that exist without anyone currently identifying as them. Like a Luddite, for example. Another example is there's no such thing as race, yet we treat it like it's a real thing. There is no physical power that leaves one president and enters another during inauguration. Yet the pomp and the ceremony, as well as the agreed-upon truth, that the new president has such power makes it so. Identity is a human invention and does not describe a real thing. It describes, at most, a history, a set of feelings, and communicates like a symbol does. If I tell you I am homoflexible, then I am attempting to communicate that I am predominantly interested in males, both sexually and romantically, though I may find myself in bed with a woman every so often. If I tell you I'm left-leaning Republican, then I'm communicating my social political beliefs while describing both the party I'm affiliated with and how I believe a government should behave. People complain now that there are too many identities, that you can identify as whatever you want. And I say that's just always been the case. Interesting. Is there a difference? Do you see a difference between an abstract idea of identity such as political or religious versus a physiological identity like gender, for example, like as far as the, the construct of identity, do you separate those at all? Or is it still just under the same identity title? Uh, for the sake of this essay, I would lump them all in one thing. 
um, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, of course, there's a difference between an identity uh, like race or gender and something like whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. One is ideological and uh, value system based and how you behave in your life. And another one is ties you to this uh, history, uh, how you're treated in everyday life and uh, what your body goes through or looks like. Do you think what you are with your body? Yeah. Do, do you think that the the herd, as it were, everyone out there at large, do you think the average individual would accept uh, more of a philosophical ID, uh, identity than they would any type of gender? Because we, we have seen that it's a huge issue right now with whether or not people accept the idea of trans people, ignoring mm-hmm. history and everything, but... Th- why, I guess maybe a better question would be, why do you think people have such a hard time with that identity label that others claim over something like religion or political sides of things? Well, I get to that a little bit later in the essay, but it's um, it's it's easier to accept something that's invisible, like a value okay. system. Um, of course, you know, if you're raised in a Christian household and then you suddenly switch to Islam, people are going to have a serious problem with that. (laughs) But the other thing I will say about this um, gender fluidity movement and uh, transgenderism becoming far more mainstream is now it's becoming easier for people to discuss and accept even if they don't believe. Yeah. Which I think is fine. There's still people who don't think homosexuality is a real thing. That blows my mind. now it's... Well, now it's more or less... um, just like, okay, I accept that you do something that I don't believe is right, natural, or even exists. I'm like, <laughs> I just put my penis inside a man's pot. Are you, do, how, it exists. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> so, All right. Well, let's, uh, let's continue on with this because I'm excited to see where this goes. All right. So part two, the furry, escapism and primal identities. <laughs> People have identified as animals for eons. I see the furry identity as a continuation of that tradition, even if it's more cartoonish. Past shamans, occultists, pagan priests of all walks have become animals through various forms of possession. Sure, the ceremony and religious elements may have been removed, but it's still essentially the same. Uh, Whether the furry is sexual or not, it amounts to escapism, becoming a pure form of yourself and enjoying the play it brings. Think of the werewolf transformation LeVay wrote about in The Devil's Notebook. Whether some of these people identify as a furry or just indulge in furry activities every so often, it is what they are, or at least part of it. Others would challenge this identity because it's clear that the furry is a homo sapien. They cannot be an animal, or at least that particular animal. And yet, dress up and play is something we have always done, from children up to adults. When, you're, uh, when you are dressed up, you would identify as the thing you're being. What is the difference here? See, this blows my mind a little bit because this is a new... I always identified the idea of um, furry as like a sex thing, not as an actual identity that people a take lot of on. Furries don't, a lot of furries, it, it may be erotic, um, yeah. but a, a lot of furries don't have sex while they're in furry form. Wow. Okay, so I was at a Christmas party at my work and they... <laughs> Uh, one of the ladies showed passed a photo that her daughter in class took of another student 
And this student identifies as a fuzzy unicorn and wears a fuzzy unicorn, like the whole headpiece, the whole outfit, every single day. And they don't talk, they make noises. And okay. the school accepts this for some reason. And this blows my mind because, and I can't help but, I struggle with this because I think that's a load of horse shit, <laughs> unicorn shit, but the school doesn't, the child doesn't, the parents of the child doesn't. And so I can't help but think, am I on the wrong side of this issue? Like, is this, I never even considered this to be an issue until I saw that photo and I was told about the reality behind it. Is this like a new thing or has this always been there and I just have been ignorant to it? Furry's always been there. Uh, uh, it's it's a longtime part of the BDSM world. It's like putt play. It's considered soft BDSM. Uh, now, when it comes to having to, I, I would put I would put the child uh, making noises and that being acceptable instead of communicating uh, as they should with other people. Yeah, <laughs> I I would. I don't know, if I were their parent, I would try to explain it as um, this may be your identity, this may be who you believe you are, but uh, you're a magical unicorn who can use human words. Ah. Depending, depending on the age of the child. Right. If they're a little bit older, I would try to explain it to them as um, you still have to be able to function mm -hmm. in the outside world. Yeah, it's it, to me. It's the same thing as when a Christian is like is is excused from class because it goes against their religious beliefs to learn about evolution. Like, no, the world should not have right. to bend to everybody's beliefs and everybody's identities. There's a difference between accepting how someone presents themselves mm -hmm. and what is appropriate for where you are. Um, for Satanists, this is not always appropriate. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going around flashing my my leather gear that i would wear at a bdsm club mm -hmm. at work yeah it's inappropriate <laughs> um so identify as you wish but know where you are and you still have to function with everybody else i feel like that middle of the road thing is kind of lost on you know the pendulum swings it's mm -hmm. it yeah you know, it was all these different identities that have long existed in certain parts of society or certain certain parts of the world are all coming out and wanting to live as they are in the everyday, which is great. Um, and now it's going too far in that direction where it's, you can identify as a unicorn and everybody else has to learn whatever squeak means <laughs> instead of you saying, yes, I'm a unicorn, but I can still use people words. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really just boils down to whether or not you are an active participant in the society. Because if you're going to participate in society then you have to use a little bit of lesser magic whether you understand it as that or not in, in you know just to, to speak to what you're saying here in order to get along with the rest of society we'll tuck our sigil of baphomet when needed because we're not fucking idiots hopefully other identities would be intelligent enough to know when they can fly their flag and when they should you know hide their flag or at least subdue it but it does seem like we are in an era where everyone is just like flapping it around as hard as possible saying look at me i am different i am me and and for someone who as a satanist i don't think anyone's fucking special <laughs> you have to prove yourself to be you're not special just because you think you are you have to do something and through that 
you may prove to be of you know excellence or you may just show that you're a dumbass but you don't well, just get it because you say you're something because you identify right. in some way and as a child in a classroom this is like ninth or tenth grade like this is not elementary school this is insane to okay me. yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask that because in, yeah. when i was in elementary school i was obsessed with jim carrey's the riddler <laughs> so i got the costume no, what? Halloween, and I had a bunch of really corny and awful riddles <laughs> in a green bag with a question mark on it. No way. <laughs> and I had a golden cane. If you got my riddle wrong, I would whack you in the knees, run away laughing. What? <laughs> yeah. So my parents couldn't get me out of that costume for nine months, and Whoa. they convinced the school to let me wear it. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. He is the Riddler. Sorry, we can't help it. It's just who he is. <laughs> pretty much so that's why i was going to ask about the age because my parents were just like let him let him just go through it mm -hmm. <laughs> of course that didn't work every time because they felt the same thing about satanism and witchcraft and yeah. you know sometimes things just stick yeah yeah apparently for this child the unicorn thing stuck but they maybe they'll just learn the hard way that no there's still uh you, you can't the, the world cannot bend to everybody. Mm -hmm. It can't. There's too many people with uh, different needs. Even if you want to look at this from the most, uh, the most liberal, uh, or the most snowflake, whatever those uh, words mean now. Right. Now they're just pejoratives. Yeah. So um, if you want to look at it from that, the most extreme form of that example, it's okay. We need to be compassionate, understanding to every person who has different needs, uh, different sensibilities, and different identities. How are you going to do that for everybody while considering everyone? Maybe we should all agree to just understand that we all have different needs, and there's there needs to be a baseline of um, of working together. And in order to do that, we need a common language, and squeaking cannot be that common. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, if a motherfucker nays at me. Like, I'm supposed to understand what that name means. I'm not playing alone. I cannot accept that. I'll just smack the fucking horse head off their body and just ask them to speak like a human because we're fucking humans. And that's the other thing. I don't want to... Well, either that or just try to ride the child and get some, you know, magical ice cream out of them. I could just see the arrest <laughs> record. Well, he tried to ride a child. And I, and then you could say they are not a child. They identify as a unicorn, <laughs> unicorn, and I was respecting their identity. And as far as I know, the law does not protect magical horses. Oh my gosh. So this magical horse cannot vote. That would be the worst. They have no uh, personal property. Yeah. They, they are, let's, let's follow it, this line of logic. It's here worse a than a slave, literally. Like, you yeah, don't even get humanity acknowledgement. Like, yeah. <laughs> it poops Skittles. How did that happen? Um, all right. Well, you have more here. So, I mean, we have lots more to dive into. So let's let's continue on. Sure. And I go, before we do, I can already hear. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Transgenderism and identity and is and I don't give a fuck. Transgenderism and gender fluidity are the hot topics right now, and I can see why these identities are so contested. It flies in the face of what has been long considered basic truths, facts of life. Though people seem to think gender and sex are the same things. They're not. Gender and sex are not the same thing. 
Without going to the science of transgenderism, since the research is clear that no one in this community is mentally ill or delusional regarding their feelings about their gender or their medical goals. So now that that is clear, let's move on to why it just ultimately doesn't matter. Gender has been used to denote genitals and social roles, and I've seen arguments that when someone asks an androgynous person if they're a boy or a girl, that it's a creepy question because they are basically asking what's in your pants. Personally, since I'm gay and I'm frequently asked how big my dick is or how tight my ass is or something else about my what's in my pants, I don't find it creepy. I'm used to it. I firmly think, though, that there is nothing wrong with someone who is on a more extreme end of the sexual continuum, i.e. gay or straight, to be concerned with what they'll be engaged with downstairs. Uh, I had similar concerns when someone I was interested in a few years ago told me they were a trans man. Does this mean I didn't accept their identity as a man? No, I was attracted to them and I accepted that they are a man. They just had genitalia I am not, a, not usually attracted to, nor I had engaged with in years. But I got over it pretty quickly and I still enjoy many good times with him in and out of bed. But to the point of the section, it doesn't matter if you agree that the person before you is a man or a woman by your definition. Gender, uh, the definitions of gender has, have fluctuated throughout history and for eons. The duties of each have changed over the course of human history. Boys have been accepted as girls despite how their body presents because gender denotes something more than how many holes you have. Sure, it's different depending on the culture you're discussing, but again, that's exactly my point. There has always been an identity crisis and your insistence that one identity is objectively true while another one is false is solipsism and forgetfulness of past orthodoxies. It's also historically wrong and anthropologically retarded. <laughs> I, I can't help I'm but- I'm so happy I'm still angry about things. Yeah. <laughs> angry enough. I thought to... it would go away. Yeah. After my 20s was over, no. <laughs> well, when people are still having the same fight. And this is where I have to take a step back and, and, and reflect a little bit. Because is others' objections to trans individuals the same as my objections to furries moving about society in public? as whatever they identify as a fuzzy unicorn in this child's case is that objection the same am i just being bigoted and and behind an evolving societal acceptance i don't think so i think your objection with the child is that they can, they're not functioning in the class right so i mean if you said it's wrong that they think they're your unicorn and dress up in school i would say well adam i think it's wrong that you think you're attractive and that your beard looks good but he, you're allowed to do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, <laughs> try harder. So, oh, man. So I didn't know this with, was going to uh, go there. <laughs> so with uh, people who feel that they were born in the wrong body or that they're gender fluid or just don't agree with the gender roles as our culture presents them and have choose, chosen to move beyond the binary gender system, that doesn't affect anybody. Mm -hmm. So I don't see why anybody would have a problem with it. Now, if you're their parents or their friends, like um, one of my, my cousin's girlfriend mm -hmm. recently came out as trans and everyone was having a hard time. So my phone was blowing off the hook. And what I told everybody was, uh, what's, what's, what's the problem? They're like, well, it's difficult. You know, now we have to, uh, 
call her this and i was like him like yeah see that's hard i'm like why i just did it (laughs) i've known him for the same amount of time you all have yeah i see him once a year like well it's just like what 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 is his girlfriend gonna do i'm like that is their business well how are they gonna have sex you really want to know about their sex life see that's what yeah that's what people are it's it's the same it's not exactly the same thing but it carries the same spirit as when people you know have trouble with uh being gay well you know who's gonna wear mm-hmm. the pants mm-hmm. well i'm pretty sure unless one of us cross-dressed we're both gonna wear them well what are you gonna do if why do you why is that any of your business what yeah. my cousin decides to do since she is a lesbian is her business and she's called me and asked for my advice i'm like honey that's you know, I dated a man who transitioned to becoming a woman, and I left him because I'm gay. I'm not attracted to women. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still good friends, and she understood, uh, and she still does. But, like, did I made the right decision for me, and now she's happily married with, with a great dude. So mm-hmm. it was the right decision for her, too, as well. Um, but that's, that. I think that's where it, it, it's, I can get why people get confused but against it like what, what what are you against yeah wait what are they doing to you <laughs> well, except shortening their name or sometimes well all you have to do is say a different word is it really yeah. that hard i know i know vocabulary has gone just to shit but really it's him her or they it's not that difficult yeah and people use they in the singular all the fucking time yeah <laughs> yeah no absolutely Th- this is what i i think it's the idea that you're you're bowing down to someone else's wishes when you simply don't want to. You don't want to accept it, so you're not going to bow down to it. You're not going to meet them on their, you know, halfway ground. You don't even want to do it. What? <laughs> I don't want to do it. You can't make me. Yeah, they're it like, is. They're I like mean, little... I was, I was having a conversation um, in just in passing. It wasn't in depth or anything where, where someone was saying, well... I'm straight up never going to call them by the pronoun that they prefer or how they identify because I see them as X. They will be known as X forever to me. I was like, well, that's strange because I've never looked at a guy and when uh, we're having an argument or I just start calling him she out of nowhere, like I would never, you know, why would you, if someone identifies as a man, go out of your way to call that man a she. Like, that seems weird to me. I've never gone to a man and said, uh, hey, uh, you know, refer to it as he or she or, she or her or anything like that. That's weird. That's it, The whole construct is strange to me. Like, why does it fucking matter what you think? And, and this is the other side of it is... Uh, clearly as Satanists, we, you know, we see ourselves as, you know, our own gods. We like to think that we're the, the highest embodiment of human life. I've met too many of you. I know that's not true. But, but there's that idea that uh, we, we see ourselves so enlightened. And yet there's a large majority. I don't know if it's majority, but there's a large portion of Satanists that I know who would refuse to accept that someone else identifies a certain way that is in contrast to how they perceive that individual and that blows my mind that's fine they can do that if i when i meet individuals who are like well i refuse to but i'm i'm an asshole and i have time to waste so <laughs> when i run clearly people, you're here like right so, um 
uh, when I run into people like that and they kind of refuse to, uh, they, they make a point of saying, uh, you know, I, well, I refuse to address him as her or her as him or they or whatever. Uh, I was like, okay, Bobby. Well, that's not my name. <laughs> yeah, but that's how I see you. You look like a Bobby. <laughs> you definitely look like a Bobby. <laughs> or another time it's like, okay, cunt. You can't call me that. Why? That's how I see you. You look like a this. perfect large vagina, I, your labia. My name is Tina. Well, now I'm going to call you a cunt. Because <laughs> that's how I see I don't see your point. That's fine, cunt. That's okay. <laughs> you need to accept my <laughs> You have to accept my truth. <laughs> my truth. Oh, my truth. Yeah, I hate that phrase. Oh, I my truth. I people, too. Yeah. Like, I actually get <laughs> mad at that phrase. <laughs> my truth. I think that, and that, that's the other thing is that, okay, well, we have more to go through. <laughs> let's, let's, but I want to talk about how much we hate my truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not your truth. The idea of having a truth that is objective only to yourself that no one else shares. We live in a reality, whether we accept the reality or not is in like completely uh, meaningless to the fact that you are in this reality. So I think. Everyone I, I else is going to treat you the way that you present yourself. Like yeah. there's going to be one-offs that are like, I'm not going to treat him the way he presents himself because I see him as a her. But for the most well, part, they are they're cunts. Yeah, that's their new yeah. pronoun. <laughs> that's the new pro. Let's make that a thing. Let's make that movement. Hashtag, you're a cunt. <laughs> transphobic cunt. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag transphobic cunt. Um, right. it, I do... think. Uh, well, on, on this point though, I think. Um, uh, Peggy's essay really hit the nail on the head. Yeah, uh, I thought, <laughs> like P Peter went in depth and did more highbrow, mm -hmm. and uh, I was like, yeah, but I kind of like Peggy's more. It was straight, simple, and to the point. Yeah. It was very much like, no, we're all about uh, creating. Or like, are you going to check my red hair ID? I'm like, we do. Mm -hmm. We change ourselves and um, present ourselves as whatever we wish. Yeah. It's no different with transgenderism, except it's a lot more expensive. And to me, to me if you're if you're happier um, presenting in a in a gender that you identify with, hats off to you. That's expensive and courageous mm -hmm. uh, to go through that. It's a lot easier than dyeing your hair or just coming out of the closet. So, yeah. For for those of you who haven't read it, it's on the Church of Satan website com, and the essay is called i believe a redhead named peggy like i'm going yeah, that's on that in here. so check it out it's a great read um all right so let's let's continue on here all right here's the final end the final and whatever <laughs> <laughs> the case against objective truth and identities identity is like a personality it's an amalgamation of experiences thoughts feelings and a way to communicate your predominant self Part of my identity is a Satanist. In the BDSM world, I'm a dom. In bed, say <laughs> this out loud. In bed, I'm closer to bisexual these days. What? And I'm a cis male. I'm Lebanese. I'm Swedish. I'm a romantic. I'm a punster. I am a professional writer, and I'm a major pain in Adam Campbell's ass. <laughs> All of these things make up the single identity uh, of a den or den. There are also different hats I put on depending on where I'm at. Separate identities that all communicate what is most effective depending on where I am, and yet it's all one identity. Identity is a personal symbol crafted to work in the world. It's not an objective thing. So don't come at me with your truth or the truth. 
unless you're gravity or you're going to suck my dick. As always, my fellow eroticists, keep your skirts up, your pants down, no matter who bends over. In the end, we're all role-playing something. <laughs> it is so fucking nice to be returning to this uh, segment. I This is so fucking great. Uh, before yeah, I walked by my desk and he was like, you look giddy as a clown. Look, I'm bitching about sex again. I'm so happy. <laughs> I still got it, baby. <laughs> um, the idea of objective truth drives me crazy. We, we live in a subjective world. Like there is reality that we all accept. You mentioned gravity is one of them. Yes, the, gravity exists. Physics, science, proven science exists. So we have to accept that reality, but we have all of these interpretations of that reality that differ greatly. And so I think that's where, because our brains are so dependent on the individual chemical makeup and individual physical development, you know, whether you had trauma or you're missing uh, synapses firing because of, uh, you know, whatever mutation your physiological development had, um, the environment that you were raised in. There's so many factors that go into how we perceive and differentiate perceptions of this reality that it's no wonder why we all differ. But there are points like science and gravity that we can all, well, science, gravity is part of science, where we can all just agree that, yeah, yeah, this is real because it's provable over and over again. Well the idea except of... that the world is not round oh dude what are you doing here we go people we never <laughs> we never went to the moon <laughs> the earth is flat uh, i mean we went to the moon it's on the other side of antarctica oh man oh man it's don't listen right. to him people <laughs> ignore him everything up to now is good <laughs> discard the rest um no but i mean is there any way that in the future we're all just going to be like, okay, no, no, no. Um, there are trans people. There are homosexual people. There are women who have the right to vote. <laughs> there are uh, minorities, eth ethnic minorities that should be treated as other human beings are treated. Like, are we ever going to get to a point where we get past this shit? Or is this just a part of our tribal lizard brain? I think it's unfortunately a little bit, we're a bit too tribal for that. Um, the, uh... I don't know. I hope so. But ultimately, I, I approach these kind of topics from uh, where we're this bizarre and amazing animal that, as you said, uh, is pretty subjective. Unlike the majority of other animals, as we understand it currently, mm -hmm. they mostly respond to instincts or a stimulus versus us. We internalize and uh, create our own little worlds that we interact with, um, that we place on the objective world. So, uh, to me, this, uh, this kind of tug of war over identity is kind of like just a, just another way the animal is being creative. Um, feel a certain way, think of yourself in a certain fashion and then express that. So, uh, even with the unicorn kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Then yeah. I just, to me, to, to me, it's ultimately just accept people as they present themselves. It doesn't mean you have to agree or like it, mm -hmm. but there, it doesn't take much to be civil or to be a yeah. jackass and ride the, you know, 17 year old unicorn. A or B, whatever, <laughs> whatever works. <laughs> I'm not going to be the and one. Then, and that, when it comes to things like transgenderism, it's been extensively researched. Mm -hmm. To me, there's just no question. 
And even if someone identifies as gender fluid, which um, uh, gender fluid to me is kind of more uh, more of a social thing um, than uh, than to me, gender fluidity is more about a rejection of gender dichotomy mm. than I feel like I'm in the wrong body right. to me. And, uh, you know, I could be wrong about that, but that's how it's been presented to me so far and from what I've read. And so it's just kind of like, okay, great. So you found an identity and a form of self-expression that you're comfortable with. Yeah. Good for you. I mean, uh, you know, Magister Harris likes to dress like he's a 70s pimp. Mm -hmm. I have to accept him as that kind of gaudy. Yeah, that's why I always <laughs> give him 10 bucks after he pimp slaps me every time I see him. <laughs> Where's my money, bitch? And I just give him 10 bucks. I'm like, all right. There we all go. Right. You don't have to it's the only me. way to get rid of him. God damn it. <laughs> um, I... I I, I like what you just said there because there, there's this idea of um, it, it doesn't take anything away from you, but also uh, you could be wrong in the way that you perceive the world around you. And having that humility as a human being, I think, is essential because it's the only way that we're going to find out truths. We have a hypothesis that we believe in the moment and we may be proven wrong down in the future and we have to be willing to accept the truth that we are shown down in the future. Like this is what drives me so crazy about um, anyone who argues against the idea of homosexuality or transgendered individuals is that they're always referencing scientists from errors that we would never trust them with medical science. We would <laughs> never trust them with like anything. But mm. somehow they were right a hundred years ago or fifty years ago about this one thing. Well, when Come people on. argue against transgenderism, they're trying to argue in favor of biological sex. And if you're going to argue in favor of biological sex, that means you have to account for every single gender expression that we know throughout history, and you can't do that. Mm. Um, if you can, hats off to you. You know, Good Hawkins time. is stupid compared to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, two, how are you going to categorize biological sex? Are you going to do it by genetics? Because you can't. If you want to do it that way, then there's seven sexes. Seven. Are you going to do it by genitalia? Okay, so then there's four sexes. Where's my hand Wait, going? what? <laughs> four, four sexes. Genitalia? Oh, man. I need, a, I need to open a book because... So, like, someone with a vagina who has uh, test, uh, internal testes, but no ovaries. Right, no... right, 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 right. I know you said now. Right, so hermaphrodites. Yeah, yeah. But then there's a few classifications of hermaphrodites as well. Mm -hmm. um, there, you, uh, so the animal kingdom is fucking weird. Yeah. So when something new happens, some people are like, well, it's a mutation, therefore it's wrong. I'm like, you've heard about evolution, right? Maybe we're just evolving into a sexless species. Yeah. Maybe. That's uh, really interesting because, and I want a medical error that we have to fix. You mean like yeah. circumcision? <laughs> you like, until we understand something, let's not go and yeah. place moral judgment on it. It's, this is a lesson we were supposed to learn from the X-Men. Just because it's weird, <laughs> and it's weird doesn't mean you need to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. There's room for Magneto and Professor X. <laughs> uh, 
I'm, uh, I was Magneto all the way. Like, fuck those human bitches. Really? They got, I they loved got that go. cartoon back in the day. Um, okay, sorry, that's dating me. Uh, I we're gonna have to close our conversation down here uh, here shortly. But I do love that idea of seeing it through the lens of evolution because that's an objective reality. Like that that just is. We can't argue it. It's how our species has survived, and evolution is chaotic random mutations there's mm -hmm. no order to it it's just whatever happens to survive with x mutation moves on into the future to be mutated again so that is an interesting way to look at it and i never have looked at it that way before huh to me to me it essentially just it, do, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. it, it's okay you have presented yourself to me in this way i will do my best to try and um be civil regarding your self-expression yeah um, even if I don't like you, like, um, uh, you know, if, if you don't like a trans woman, you don't have to go out of your way to refer to her as him. That's just childish. Um, just be like, okay, then you, you know what? Use female, traditionally female insults. Okay, cunt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, or just off, avoid bitch. them. Well, you <laughs> gotta insult option. them first. How are they going to know that you don't like them? <laughs> Thank Adam. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So to me, it's just very simple. Accept, um, just accept the landscape as it's presented. It doesn't mean you have to believe it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, then this is fucking awesome. This is so fascinating. I, I'm, and it's, I, I want to continue doing this. Like, this is an anniversary episode that we're doing this for. But this, this, like, lights a fire under my ass about what I loved about doing this for so many years of you. This is great. Thank you so much for joining me on this. Thank you. It was fun to do it again. All, all I write about these days is what, you know, the businesses tell me to do. So it's nice to write about, uh, you know, angry sex again. <laughs> or well, <laughs> sex I'm angry about. I don't know. Something something weird. Angry sex is good, too. I'm down with yeah. that. Um, hate fuck people. Hate fuck. Hate fuck those unicorns. Um, <laughs> where can people find you online? You want to share any uh, social media or websites or anything? Uh, I'm still doing Horns Magazine. That's that's about it. It looks like 2020 is going to have its first spring issue. Other than that, I'm just I'm focused on my professional life. Yeah. So I've kind of stepped away from everything else. All right. Well, HornsMagazine.com, right? Yep, that's right. Horns Magazine. God, I'm terrible at this. Uh, <laughs> Horn, yeah, HornsMagazine.com. Uh, we just released our third anniversary issue. It's great. Yeah. Naked dick-sucking zombies, people. Zombies? All right, people, check out the zombies. Do you have any unicorns in any of your issues yet? No, but I do have the cranberries. <laughs> Get it yet? <laughs> okay. All right. If that's lost on anybody, fuck them. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And, uh, man, until next time, uh, if there's ever a next time, hell Satan. Hell Satan, buddy. Ah, oh, that was great. It ends the best. Let's do a little unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig. Fascination is a binding which comes from the spirit of the witch through the eyes of him that is bewitched. Entering fascination is a binding. Now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure, lucid, subtle generated of the pure spirit of the witch by the heat of the eye. Thank you so much for coming back on after so many years and joining us on this anniversary episode. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've already primed you a little bit with 
a question that I had received a, a long time ago that was never really addressed. Uh, mm -hmm. I had planned on having it addressed in a formal uh, episode of a, of a former version of a show I was running, but it just never got around to it. So I figured, why not do it here? And the question was, uh, what is the difference between Satanism and Luciferianism? And I only knew a little like surface stuff. And so I don't know anyone who could answer it better probably than you. So what do you think? Um, well, so it's a bit of a complicated question because it positions them as somewhat opposite. Mm -hmm. um, but from my perspective as a scholar, I think uh, they're far more similar than not. And they're not actually separate things. So let, let's, let's conceive of images in the meta-narrative of the devil or Satan or cosmic evil. Like, let's go way back and just think of a ancient Zoroastrianism. Whoa, you know, all right. good God, a bad God, and humans are fighting for either on the good side or the bad side, right? Uh, this is really this uh, the origin of uh, dualistic thinking. And uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, you know, in, in its ancient form, you know, covered uh, a huge span of uh, the world at the time. Mm. And... Uh, not North America. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but there's, there's other places. Yeah, <laughs> just North um, <laughs> There are, and um, uh, even though nowadays I don't remember what the number is, but the there are still Zoroastrians, but their numbers have been uh, they're dwindled down to a very small. But it was so influential this notion of a good god and a bad god um, that it eventually. Uh, makes its way into uh, Judaism for a brief period, okay? Sure. And so the reason I bring this up is because this notion of dualism, which is really what these Lucifer or Satan characters appear by different names, they get folded into one another. You may sometimes you hear the word uh, Azazel for one of the mm -hmm. demons, or Beelzebub, or they're not necessarily one character, but what happens with these ancient texts is uh, there are different narratives from different times, uh, but if there is some sort of character that represents kind of evil or at least uh, somewhat oppositional to a cosmic good, um, then the, they get folded into the Satan narrative that, that the, the Western world, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, sort of understands today. But they're all just disparate uh, uh, texts from all over the ancient world. So when you say, um, what's the difference between Satanism and Luciferianism, I say, well, you know, compared to all the different versions, you know, not very much at all. And let's, let's think about Whoa. this the second I know. So, so if, you, if, if we think about ancient Zoroastrianism, let's just, in our minds, good God, bad God, and the billions of uh, interpretations of this type of narrative, everything from South Park to um, Pizzagate to uh, the show on Netflix, uh, Lucifer, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're, so in popular culture, in politics, uh, in, in uh, theology, and the Church of Satan is one small interpretation of these billions of different narratives that have existed and will continue to interpret and reinterpret a character that kind of, you know, represents an oppositional force. Mm -hmm. So um, Luciferianism isn't just like Satanism. Now, I know it's contentious to say to members of the Church of Satan, but when I say Satanism, 
Um, I'm talking broadly about interpretations of Satan, but then broadly interpretations of Lucifer have all kinds of points in common. Like they're not these drastically different types of worldviews because the oppositional character uh, is tends to be left-hand path uh, in this kind of conceptual way, uh, opposing what they seem as mainstream religion. Um, and uh, some sort of influence by Gnostic, Gnosticism, but the, the main issue with that is that scholars that look at Gnosticism uh, would reject that entirely. So it's a, a popular understanding of what Gnosticism is, not necessarily actual, um, you know, academic type of understandings of Gnosticism, because uh, academics who study that say, well, it's a label we've applied later on. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it becomes this sort of complicated mess of uh, people interpreting this, these particular stories of the Satan or devil or cosmic evil or unoppositional character. So when the question is asked, I'm far more interested in what they have in common and the broad historical, political, social, uh, environmental, uh, cultural, religious uh, ideas that influence why people would be drawn to these types of characters. Right? So, so LeVay does one particular thing. He, yeah. he codifies, he makes it firm atheism uh, with fuzzy borders on that with magic um, is how I kind of conceive of it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, he does one particular uh, thing and, and it's defined. Sure. But, what the Church of Satan does that doesn't apply to me is reject all other interpretations. Right. And that's not my interest academically. And even personally, I have less of a, I don't seem to have that same, uh, what's the word? <laughs> uh, investment in maintaining that line as others do. Like, right. and I know, and I thought it's deeply offensive to many, many members. Mm -hmm. uh, it is what it is, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm just more interested in the idea. So. Mm -hmm. So when we say what the difference is, I was like, well, there's plenty of differences. The, the sense that people who may self-identify as Luciferian would um, agree with quite a few points that um, the average Church of Satan member does, um, or even other types of uh, different people who are adopting notions of Satan or the devil in different, you know, either esoteric or atheistic or magical or witchcraft ways. like. There's, there's so many different interpretations that I, I cannot quite reduce it to these uh, to particular um, oppositional ideologies mm -hmm. because the differences from the broad meta view are actually quite small. You know, wow. like a, a Luciferian isn't behaving that differently than the average Satanist as yeah yeah. As highly offensive as I understand that claim to be, what I'm saying is if, if you're adopting an oppositional character that for yourself is some sort of symbol for how you live your life. Mm -hmm. And to the outside broader uh, world that just looks at all this kind of subculture, um, the vampire subculture, the satanic subculture, the witch subculture, well, there's much more in common with each other than, than the broader society. Right, especially and which is one of the main issues with 
uh, when you're part of a marginal group is that the outside world uh, sees no difference at all. Now, right. once we get down into details, there's tons of differences, tons, absolutely. When you get down to the nerdy details, totally. But in the broad uh, view, they, f they fit along with a particular type of grouping mm -hmm. of people responding <clears throat> to the idea as as somehow a notion of the self, of championing the self, of championing uh, individualism as what they see as radical individualism, as challenging the status quo, as um, a notion of pursuing intellectual uh, curiosities, of a position of inquiry, sexual freedoms, right? These, yeah. The devil, the Satan character, the demon characters always represent this cluster of ideals, right? And then the mm -hmm. details for how a particular religion gets registered, codified, uh, structured, titled, like those things become then the details for how they enact that symbol in the world. Um, but ultimately the cluster of ideals are kind of the same. It's like, <laughs> it's, like it's like a, you know, <laughs> it's a cluster of, of, it's a cluster of points of contact, yeah, as I would yeah. say. A bit unsatisfying. <laughs> I want this one's red and this one's orange. <laughs> well, they're both shades of one or the other, and there's so many like little nuances. Do you think? Do you think we as individuals try to make too big of a distinction where there really isn't one uh, globally? Mm, no, I think that's uh, a a a human tendency um, yeah. to uh, try to codify what you stand for and what you don't. I mean, I don't. I'm not passing a moral judgment on the fact right, that right, right. the Church of Satan, you know, draws lines because so does every church ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even when those lines are drawn, like they're subject to adaptation and reinterpretation. It doesn't matter the religion. There is constantly, there's never religion in the entire history of uh, human culture that has remained um, static. Like it's always yeah. this constant, uh, yeah, this constant um Shifting and even even within the Church of Satan, uh, when you compare it to other new religious movements or even other left-hand path movements, you know they coincide in these ways. Um, it interestingly hasn't shifted that much, but there's still shifts. I mean, with leadership, I mean you can, if you wanted to get super nerdy and detailed, I'm sure you could find um, just shifts in tone between Levey and Gilmore. I mean that's just natural. And yeah. and uh, I think Gilmore said in an interview once. Uh, I don't remember where, but someone asked him about whether or not they would ever change um, a principle or an idea of the church. And he said, well, of course, like if the times change and it makes sense to change something, like we would change it. Like if, it, if suddenly this, whatever, whatever it was, yeah. like hypothetically uh, didn't make sense, we would make the practical choice of like, oh, right, this, it makes sense to shift this, not to stick to old tradition if it, if it gets, actually gets outdated. And uh which is a, um, a novel approach and also somewhat unusual for new religions. Now, mm -hmm. uh, many new religions do, do constant shifts and changes as they adapt and try to figure out how to start their cult and make it keep working. <laughs> <laughs> and there are patterns for uh, why particular groups survive or die. Mm -hmm. um, what LeVay did that um, ensured some longevity is that he, uh, after the first, I guess, 10 years or so, when he retreats to pri private life and he lets the 
uh, Council of Nine rule. So mm -hmm. his then authority has already been uh, diffused via an administrative board. Mm -hmm. uh, as in, it, it would, he didn't hold on to it. Um, uh, I mean, he certainly was had the title, but he wasn't the public representative up until his death, and then everything gets chaos, even though there certainly was chaos after his death. Oh, yeah. but, the, but, but the idea of the church being an entity apart from him already existed in the minds of members. Mm -hmm. Right, so that that, um, that massive existential crisis that a lot of uh, different um, groups or new religious movements go through when a leader dies or gets incarcerated or something <laughs> like a lot of a lot of different things happen for some of these groups. Yeah, um, it didn't happen. We're getting you know, a there little certainly bit. Certainly was I imagine um, issues. Yeah, we're getting a little bit of uh, issues of our own <laughs> with the video. Yeah. Off. All right, so that's back. Um, yeah. yeah, it's 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 wild because you, as a scholar, take a very different view than just your average uh, Satanist who identifies as a Satanist and or, or a Luciferian who identifies as Luciferian and sees these wide gaps that are really just these sort of minutia of differences. And I mean, we're tribal. That that's what we are as human beings. It was a survival tactic, so it makes sense that it would carry through to everything from our religious identity to you know your your political or, or your social uh, groups. So, why would we not naturally make these hard boundaries, saying this is what a Satanist is and this was what a, it, a Luciferian is, and th this is the gap between them. But equally, just to your point people get genuinely upset when they hear this idea that, well, you're really not that different. And I mean, personally, I don't necessarily mind it so much, especially when it comes from an academic standpoint. I think there's a right. lot of rational logic behind the examination of different groups. And, and so it, it doesn't particularly bother me at all. And because I'm not threatened by <laughs> whatever the fuck a Luciferian believes. So, you know, I believe what I want and I'm okay with that. If we're, like 90% the same, I really don't care. If we're 2%, I really don't care. So, and I don't know why and anyone would. Why that would also on paper, right? Like the, yeah. in the sense of, if you're studying the average left-hand path, let's just use this, let's use a broad umbrella term. Mm -hmm. Left-hand path, North American person. Uh, by and large, like the socio-demographic of that person is probably going to, ring pretty much the same. They're probably white. Uh, they're probably not high class. They're probably like, even though we have a disappearing middle class, right, you know what right. I mean? But they're probably somewhat working class, you know, middle class. Um, uh, I mean, that's just the, I, and even though there is diversity all over the place, of course there is, but, but you know, it's not, it, it's primarily <laughs> that type of people are, who may be attracted to it because, uh, and I think there's lots of reasons for that. I think uh, for one, there's a bit more freedom socially for the average white person who maybe, you know, has a nine to five job and works in, I don't know, tech at a computer all day, whatever. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what their job is, but even if they somehow had some sort of satanic or witchy identity after work, they wouldn't suffer that much professionally. Like, they, you know, if they kept quiet about it or something like yeah. that. Whereas uh, people from more um, different marginalized groups have more at risk. So it doesn't, uh, it, it, it's not just that the appeal to these things is less, it's that it, they would risk more by doing it. But although there is nowadays, fascinatingly in my field, a whole bunch of 
um, interest among um, the black community for uh, uh, witchcraft, but as an anti-colonial stance. Like, so it's a very uh, political type of, of notion. It doesn't have anything to do with the Church of Satan, but broadly, when I look at people who will identify with the words magical or witchcraft, mm -hmm. uh, here is also this thing happening with mostly young women very much into rejecting um, um, uh, colonial notions of their body and their what they are interested in. And uh, even if they're consuming products, just, just like the average white girl of like incense and um, crystals and stuff like that, they're interpretation of witchcraft um, has a lot more to do with their own uh, notions of identity and an anti-colonial uh, identity. So uh, I just bring that up to say that it does, I'm not saying that all witchcraft and magic is white. I'm just saying that when people interpret it and they come to it, they come to it with their own experience yeah. and they come to it with their own um, notions of what it would mean and what it, how they would interpret that. And, um, and as you and I both know, we've met plenty of, uh, well, I wouldn't say plenty, but we certainly met <laughs> black members or uh, of the Church of Satan. But they're, you know, it's mostly pretty white. So, um, yeah. uh, so broadly, uh, a lot of left-hand path type of people were and are. Like even in the 1960s, with the so-called uh, witchcraft revival, um, uh, there were these, you know, these hordes of white kids um, getting super into witchcraft and yoga, which was a cult practice at the time. And uh, so the ideas in society of what's considered a cult brainwashing practice um, uh, changes. If yoga and vegetarianism in the 1960s seem to be threatening the moral fabric of society. Um, as they to, are. As they are, to, yeah. To uh, the, you know, these, um, these, uh, these parents at the time. Um, I think that we can put that in perspective for how some things change. Now, uh, Satanism has always certainly positioned itself, at, no matter what, like <laughs> as as not for the uh, not for the mainstream. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true, uh, but it's not as if people everywhere aren't constantly engaging with rhetoric of the devil right. from. George Bush calling uh, key countries in the Middle East the axis of evil, evil yeah. uh, to Hillary being accused of yeah. hanging a satanic uh, pedophile ring in the basement of a pizza, pizza parlor. <laughs> yeah. So the rhetoric of Satan is always political mm -hmm. uh, and always encompasses all kinds of spheres. So. So in that in the broad sense, um, uh, satanic discourse uh, continues and will continues whether the Church of Satan um, exists or not, mm -hmm. and 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 that's sort of my broader point of, well, all these left hand path groups that kind of play with the notion of the devil, theistically or esoterically or atheistically, have far more in common than the guy who shows up at this pizza parlor with a gun ready to, you know, because yeah. he's absolutely convinced that Hillary Clinton is some sort of Satanist. Yeah. You know, like that guy's notion of Satan is very different, whereas um, some of these subcultures are not, which is my ultimate point. So that, mm -hmm. that, that, that in a hundred years when people are studying 
this particular time and this particular area, and they're looking at satanic rhetoric, um, they'll be far more focused on Pizzagate in terms of the, the, the impact of, that, of what that means um, politically and historically. Um, you know, like once uh, the U.S. descends into fascism and... <laughs> We're getting there. Give us a chance. We hope that the pendulum swings back. Um, but let's just say in 100 years when that happens, they, they'll be much more focused on the, the apocalyptic rhetoric that happens right now in, in American politics. I mean, Satan is huge right now in the sense that, in the sense that groups like the Church of Satan won't necessarily register because so much is happening right now with the religious uh, political arena and how enemies of uh, perceived enemies of uh, America, the idea, whether they're uh, internal, like whether they're actual Americans or foreign nations, uh, are always depicted in terms of cosmic evil. Oh my like, gosh. These broader movements on the rhetoric of Satan are, yeah. are it's a very exciting time to be writing a thesis about the Church of Satan with so much happening with um, Satan and the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. Like Satan and the popular imagination right now, it's actually how I'm framing my thesis. Like, well, look, here's all this shit happening. And here's this group that I'm going to zero in on, but it inherits all this rhetoric. It's it enmeshed in this rhetoric. It is responding to these rhetoric, you know, and responding to in very different ways. Like yeah. LeVay had one response, the Church of Satan has another, and then all members have a variety of responses. Mm -hmm. So everyone is engaged in the popular notion of Satan, right? Even if the Church of wow. Satan defines one particular way. I'm much yeah. more in interested, because that can be found out. People can read up on the Church of Satan's definition and they can mm -hmm. read LeVay's work. But what they can't do is necessarily um, understand how members are absorbing these ideas and absorbing all of that same history, um, whether they realize it or not, popularly understood, mm -hmm. and then um, reenacting and displaying those types of ideas in their lives. And so that's that messy, <laughs> incongruous, like ephemeral area is what uh, interests me most. Wow. <clears throat> so do you, I mean, this is central to your thesis um, in your studies. Do you think that the Church of Satan, the impact since its organization, since its, you know, forming is only going to diminish throughout the years and never have the, um, the, the bombastic authority that it once had because the idea, I mean, when it came out, it was like, that's what everyone was talking about. There's a church to Satan. But now to your sure. point, the greater, broader conversation about Satan and evil is much seemingly much more politicized and not so much religiously structured. Um, I would say that I think I, you know, I, I don't know. For one, I think that it, it's a crazy world yeah. right now. Here's what's, here's what's interesting about right now. Just the, the social scientist in me is like, Oh shit. None of the categories matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like because Trump is such chaotic evil mm. and this buffoon toddler you know that just um he very much reminds me of a of a toddler the constant lying oh, yeah. as yeah, it's yeah. like you know with chocolate on his face i didn't eat the cookie mm -hmm. like this is this no, is him in life i didn't do yeah. it like we can see the chocolate yeah, it's exactly. right there no i didn't right. do it like 
no, I didn't. And he's totally he just repeats it enough. Mm. And um, so um, I don't necessarily because of Trump's <laughs> he's a symptom of a wider problem. Yeah. But because he sort of just behaves as if nothing applies to him, like he's this ultimate buffoon of of privilege mm. and that nothing he genuinely doesn't think that laws apply to him. Like, like when he says I could shoot someone in fifth Avenue or whatever it was, his quote was mm -hmm. like, he, he, he's calling to the point where I have so much privilege. I can, I can openly display that I can do anything I want and nothing will happen to me. And so that means that the, so all these social categories and constructs that people have come to rely on, like laws mm. and, um, <laughs> and, you know, government, and mm -hmm. that he's displaying just how much is expectation, how much is, uh, needs to be enforced, that even if you have laws in the books, but if the people who are meant to enforce them don't enforce them, then what does that mean? Yeah. And that angst that I think everyone, everyone, is kind of feeling, and as he sort of amps up this uh, evangelical, especially yeah. um, feeling that the that America is being corrupted by Satan. So, to the evangelical political voter, um, Satan, the Church of Satan, is a small, tiny blip on a much bigger problem of actual Satan in infecting Democrats to ruin their entire lives. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. When you ask me about the impact of that, I think, well, just like, just like during the Satanic Panic, a lot of scholars wrote so much about the Satanic Panic. So few of them ever actually looked at the Satanists, like the Church of Satan. So, like, and if there was, it was like a, a blip. Like, yeah, here's a natural oh, wow. group of Satanists, but like, they they were affected, but brought the broader moral panic, most of them didn't necessarily um, really think that much about uh, a particular type of uh, religious group that's, you know, taking on the symbol of the devil, uh, atheistically or not, there wasn't the, it's not the focus of those studies. So yeah. and now there's so much more going on. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the video froze a little bit, groups, but other, I still have you, your audio. Yeah. Okay, good. So if, um, if <laughs> a nice uh, freezing and... Um, <laughs> I'm doing what I can, I'm sorry. <laughs> freeze ever, it's just like, I always hope that it's going to be in some like really sexy pose, but it never is. Like, it never is. <laughs> Tell me about it. Hello? Yeah, you know, I got you. I have people sending me <laughs> images of when I freeze. Like, this is what you froze on. This is what you look yeah. like right now. I'm just like, oh my god. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, okay, so to if I think about the uh, uh, impact, I certainly think it's well it's well organized enough to continue to thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how about that? Like it doesn't um, when when groups um, disband or have shifts, which they all always do, yeah. even the Church of Satan. Um, there's a, generally a whole bunch of other factors that don't really apply to the Church of Satan. Mm. So as long as the administrative cogs keep working, um, I don't necessarily see um, it dying off unless uh, unless there was interest in, you know, from the administrative board of that happening. Mm. 
You know what right. I mean? Like I said, yeah. it's not. Uh, yeah, I certainly think if, uh, it it would have an, uh, an impact. But the thing about the Church of Satan, though, is because it deliberately it deliberately does not comment publicly mm. on contemporary political issues. It decentralizes politics to its members, and the administrative board uh, attempts to stay apolitical. I have I have slight issues with that claim, but just in the sense that um, as a scholar, everything is political. Like right. everything is right. <laughs> political. <laughs> the apolitical stance is political. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, like in terms of specific parties or specific uh, policies, it leaves that to its members. So. So because it's not directly contributing to political discourse in an overt way, mm -hmm. um, then its impact isn't as uh, documented. How's that? Unless someone is going and looking for uh, open members, openly affiliated members in their particular individual political opinion. So right. like, and I have some of that, but I have to also be very clear when I write about these things hey, this is this one member that, you know, that offers this public commentary on this. Mm -hmm. And like I can contrast and compare different very public commentaries and just to demonstrate that there is a variety. But when it's, wow. that's a different type of impact than like the COS Twitter feed, you know, if it gave opinions on, you know, laws being passed. Um, right. And I think there's even a few. I think the same-sex marriage mm -hmm. um, made a statement on that. You know, there's been a few like that. And uh, and I certainly think that um, uh, when they make those types of statements, they're pretty careful. And it's not as if that when Gilmore writes about same-sex marriage, he's just reflecting what's already a policy mm -hmm. um, the Church of Satan. So it's not as if he's doing something new. He's just saying, great, we think it's a good idea, and we thought it was since the very beginning. So yeah. cool, cool, cool. You finally did something right. <laughs> so that's, Welcome. We've been so, here for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's limitations to even when there is an, a, a clear political statement made, there's still limitations to that because um, it's reflecting already established policy. Not Gilmore saying, mm -hmm. I, wanna, I want you all to vote for X because of yeah. Y reason, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, um, there you have the differences between Satanism and Luciferianism. <laughs> I hope that was satisfying. You know, let me tell you, I have, I am so fed up with Satan these days. I just want my pieces. Yeah, but this is like you live this. So how can you like how how are you dealing with your your thesis right now? Are you ready to like pull your hair out? I, I am, I am, so I had, like, a couple nervous breakdowns. Oh, no. I mean, like, <laughs> like, in terms of uh, panic attacks. Okay, legit. So, okay, so uh, here, I could talk a little bit about this. Yeah. Um, so, imposter syndrome is a thing, right? In academia, um, there's so oh, much, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you do so much work, you, you, you think it's good, but the, the pressure is immense. There's so many really talented people. And the way it's set up is, uh, it's sort of, it's it's set up. Its structure is sort of set up to make you fail and doubt yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have actually been incredibly fortunate. Like even my uh, supervisor who passed away, and oh. who I am, am mourning. Like he, um, sorry, I might start just I'm going to turn back to you. He uh, recruited me and um, was my friend, and uh, I miss him very much. Do you want to share his name? And 
Oh uh, yes, Donald Boisvert. He's a real, um, not just a kind man, but like, uh, but like when as an undergrad, I was in his classes and I took all of these classes and he was a, did a lot of uh, queer theory. He's an um, Anglican uh, priest. And uh, when I started saying like, oh, I'd like to write about this. He was like, like that's, you know, he was really excited about it. He He's, he's the scholar that, pushes his students to look at things that not only make other people uncomfortable, but also that make yourself uncomfortable. So mm. he says, if you're studying something and you have discomfort with it, like that you should sit in that, like that it's, that it can be a methodological position to sit in something that makes you kind of uncomfortable and not try to deny it or to gloss over it or pretend like it doesn't exist. It means that you as a scholar are human and true objectivity doesn't uh, exist. And um, so Donald was uh, pivotal in getting my research, um, you know, like in encouraging me to um, to pursue graduate school. Mm -hmm. And um, my new supervisor has a very different approach <laughs> and he's a lot more uh, clinical and a lot more, um, uh, what's the word? Like, um, I can't even, yeah, like when I say cl uh, 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 clinical, I mean, it's like this uh, machine, like uh, he's a, they're both oh, wow. these brilliant people who have, who have, uh, have very different approaches to scholarship, but have both um, very much been excited about my research. So I've mm. been really lucky. And even though you're, when you have really good relationships with your supervisors, I, and in December, as I was trying to write, had like these panic attacks of thinking like, oh, this is, this is it. This is where they find out that, um, Oh, like I'm no. really, this is, <laughs> this is it. This is a, uh, you know, like a the curtain's shit. been pulled. <laughs> yeah, that's it. My exceptional con is gonna be found out, <laughs> right? Right? And like, and I don't mean like it's a an abstract thought. Like I was like crying, and now keep in mind, um, in the past couple of years, I have um, recovered from major physical illness oh, yeah. and depression. Uh, I'm mourning actually three people. Um, uh, Donald's not the only person that died, but two wow. other people in my life died. And when they died, also I was sick, so I didn't really mourn them. And now that my feelings are back, like mm -hmm. I'm mourning together. And grief is a, it's a, it's a really strange emotion because like you, you know you feel sad because someone has passed, like there's a loss. But then like there's these there's these moments like <laughs> that I just feel like this overwhelming like. Like, oh, shit, they're gone. Oh, fuck. And like, <laughs> like, it hurts me physically. And I'm like, goddamn, grief is weird. You know, I'm like, mm -hmm. like I was just live there the other day, and, like, I was walking. At, uh, and I was just, like, walking, and I was just like, oh, here it comes. And, like, oh, the no. tears just... Oh, okay. no. Now, crying for grad students is pretty common. <laughs> 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 like, sometimes it's how we get through a day. Mm -hmm. But when I felt my most frustrated all these things are happening right like i'm i'm uh, i'm broke i'm tired i'm in grief uh i'm just and then i'm have these thoughts about uh, you know my whole ptsd at first was like just being alarmed wow. um i don't know if you have that as a soldier and i don't mean to mm -hmm. have you talk about painful things but um at some point sometimes when i'm extremely stressed then my body doesn't always know the difference between mm -hmm. the alarm of right now and uh, PTSD of actual events, and like, and those feelings are bizarre because 
um, you know, the borders of reality like get a little fuzzy. And then you're yeah. like, oh, shit, you're like, and like, I was aware of it. I'm like, okay, I'm aware that I'm actually safe. Like, I get it. Like, I'm mm -hmm. not seven years old. I'm not yeah, like hiding under it. a bed. Like, I, like I'm, I'm safe. But mm -hmm. because everything was happening and I'm grieving and like my thesis was so much <laughs> that I was like, I just cried for a long time. And yeah. then, uh, and then I went to uh, get some professional <laughs> help from a psychiatrist and we're good now. But, good. Like, That's fantastic though. Yeah. Uh, my main point of one, uh, graduates are, um, should treat their mental health well because it's not as if my situation is unique. Right. So uh, everyone I know has had those moments of like feeling like, oh, this is where they find it. We've done all this work. And one of the things that um, helped me <laughs> was thinking like, okay, my supervisors are both like brilliant men. Mm -hmm. Like there's no, there's no question. And like, it's not as if they would waste time with someone that they didn't think, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. could. Uh, also, I already have the publications like a junior faculty member. Like th that work is already out in the world. Mm. Like I've, I've published the equivalent of two dissertations already. So, <laughs> so, so sometimes this feeling of doubt, of self-doubt, like you just, you kind of have to let it process and go and, uh, and you know, psychologists help because mm. I went in crying and saying like, hey, you know, uh, I recognize when I need help. If yeah. I'm having, if my stress is so much that I'm actually having mild PTSD symptoms, maybe uh, I need to calm the fuck down somehow. Please help me. <laughs> and um, so my thesis is going to be written. It's I'm writing it now, but it's not as if it's not like a lot of grad students. Also, a lot of hard work because you're 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 doing very highly detailed work uh, in these, in very complicated ways. You're weaving together so many moving parts mm -hmm. and you've been dealing with the subject for such a long time and there's a lot of pressure and you have a timeline and mostly you just want to fucking get it over with. And everyone I know who's doing the same thing <laughs> right now um, has, is, we, you know, we keep uh, tabs on each other like mm. uh, as a support group and even other uh, scholars I know who have gone through it have said, yeah, I had that, I had that too. Like I, <laughs> at some point I had a fucking breakdown, cried, <laughs> just like wanted to throw my laptop across the room. <laughs> and I feel, I feel glad that at least, you know, it's, it's very common. Um, one of, uh, one colleague told me, yeah, um, I mean, I wrote my thesis sober, but I edited it drunk off my ass. And I was like, what? <laughs> They were like, look, sometimes you just, you do what you can to cope. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay. And that made me feel better. Like, I just mm -hmm. was like, look, I don't want, I'm not championing, you know, drinking, all the, like <laughs> editing drugs, but I am championing the idea that um, uh, you're, you're, you're doing this massive body of work that um, does get you the degree, even though by the time you're writing your dissertation, you've already, you've done so much. So whether people complete or not, like they... That's what it means to become a doctor. Like that's what it means that you are an expert in a particular thing. That's what it means that you can actually weave together very complex thoughts in a cohesive and uh, coherent way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sense of accomplishment of 
when the when the ideas come together well and that you know you're making a point that at least speaks to dialogue in your field. It doesn't have to have broad international impact. Most theses don't right. <laughs> are never read by more than a few people. Um, but still, you, in the romantic view, I like to think about how I've done something significant um, yeah. when I'm yeah. trying not to feel like I'm, uh, you know, wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe it's not good to ask you now because you're like in it. You're in the shit right yeah. now. But do you feel like it's worth it? Do you feel like this is something that if you could look back on your younger self, would you say, okay. yeah, continue down this road? Shit. Okay. So one, uh, worth it is a bit of a worth it. Uh, in a way, yes. Fuck, I'm a fucking doctor. You know, this degree right now, I recognize. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, I recognize that that people are not my peers in the sense that when you when I discuss what I do, it's it's a very different thing. Like you, you <laughs> um, I have I briefly tried uh, online dating, <clears throat> and I recognize that when people try to talk to me about my interests, oh, I'm no. like, well, no, like you you don't talk to Meredith Gray about medicine. Like you don't <laughs> like you don't. <laughs> if yeah. I'm if I'm a doctor of ideas then then I know my ideas way better than you do. And I don't mean that we can't have conversations. I just, mm. I'd much rather hear about someone's uh, coding, engineering, plumbing, art. Like, what do you do? Great, please, please tell me about what, <laughs> what you do. And, uh, but I, I recognize that, the, that it's hard to say it's not worth it because I've become something exceptional. I've mm -hmm. become a, a person that can think like this, that can make these thoughts this way, that can, uh, if I stayed in academia, I can see where my scholarship would go. Yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, the, I'm, a, I'm an entirely different person. This brain is, a, is different now after grad school. There's no question about it. Um, I'm functioning on a, a different level and I like it. It's really, it's fun. I like, I almost want to like look across the room and meet the eyes of other academics. I'm just like, is this, have you guys been experiencing this fucking shit? Like, this We're here, happening. right? This is the thing. <laughs> yeah. When it's good, when the ideas are good and you're like putting together, it's like this high, like I can't even, it's great. There is a, an ecstasy to this, um, to excelling at a particular thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so absolutely those, if, if I think that type of thing can be achieved in all kinds of different fields. I don't think mm -hmm. it's limited to academia, right. which is where the not worth it thing comes in. Um, it's also structure is um, inherently favors the wealthy and the white and the male. And <laughs> like it really does. Um, the entire system was originally set up that way. And then they make everyone else kind of scramble in a Hunger Games style <laughs> for funding and access. And um, it's really... It's far more brutal than I realized, it, yeah. like in terms of, and it's also why a lot of people drop out and move on because at some point you make so many sacrifices. You sacrifice this, you sacrifice uh, friendships and relationships oh, and wow. money and your health. And the people I know who um, left the program is just because at some point they let, you know, I can't, I can't make one more sacrifice. Like I've already sacrificed uh, my marriage and my, you know, kids, whatever, wow. or money. And they just, because it demands so much. It demands so much. And um, so I don't, so anyone that left the program, even though academia keeps telling, tells people who left, 
that they are worthless for leaving. <laughs> like that's also an issue. Like we we set the we set people up to fail, and when we fail, we say, "Fuck you, weren't Loser. strong enough." And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, well, you beat them over the head. Like fuck, like I, you know, like it's a you fucking make it through this shit. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't think it's necessary, and I don't mm. think it's conducive necessarily to what we're trying to do in academia. If in academia. Like if we hold it up to its most poetic ideal and we're trying to encourage new scholarship and encourage new ideas, the way that it's set up does not do that. It does it in its ideal form, but if we look at, at who gets favored and who gets funded and who gets jobs, like right now there's a massive crisis where um, boomers are retiring and departments are not hiring at the same rate. They're, so for every four or five boomers that uh, retire, they hire one tenure track oh, wow. professor. Oh, wow. And everyone else is adjunct and part-time in these uh, part-time contracts. So, uh, which are, the and the conditions for those are terrible. Absolutely mm. terrible to continue to do adjuncting work. You never know if you're going to get a contract. Um, it's low pay, there's no benefits. They often require you to move and bounce around. So we have this uh, real crisis in academia right now. It's a big, <laughs> a big, big crisis. Wow. And, um, and because the tenured professors have tenure, um, I certainly know many tenured professors that don't like this new situation. Mm. But how much they're mobilizing or the conversations they're having amongst themselves, how to change the situation with administrations, I, I don't know. I don't have access to those. So when, I, when you ask me if it's worth it, I say, well, not if you want to work in academia. Like if you want to, if you want to be a professor right now, yeah. it's not worth it. Unless you go to um, Scandinavia, uh, where they will pay you to be a grad student. And oh, wow. they say, no, because they're investing in you. Well, of course, it's a job, which makes sense. And there's benefits and medical leave and parental leave. And I'll, I'm going to let the cat out. Sorry. No, oh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, you know, when wild. He makes wild. Yeah. So uh, uh, we'll see. I, I try to hold on to the idea mm -hmm. that um, a talented, resourceful person who... Um, isn't afraid of hard work, uh, can always kind of find work. And mm. I, I hold on to this idea. At the same time, I know thousands of PhDs, recent graduates, or, you know, uh, that cannot find work at all. And mm. maybe the occasional course. And you can't, if you have a, you can't support yourself. And you've spent so long in grad school. Mm. And you've been trained for a job that does not exist anymore. God, so that's you, terrible. yeah. And they don't really have the conversation about like, well, then how can we change graduate school that even if you wanted to get a PhD to develop more um, industry jobs, how, what type of skills would you teach them? Like, you know, like to incorporate those stuff because there's mm. basic skills that even administrative uh, jobs that I've looked at that advertise that I don't have, like basic computer skills about like uh, SEOs and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah. I'm not, I don't know that shit. I know a lot about one thing. I know I'm a specialist. <laughs> I know everything about this one thing. I know massive amounts of information about yeah. one thing. And I have learned also that the, the learning curve for new things is shorter. So when I want to mm. learn a new thing, I'm much faster at absorbing a new thing, especially if it's adjacent to my field. Yeah. Right? I'm like, okay, I can learn about this, I can learn about this. And I don't learn it the way the experts do, but I, I know how to read other experts' opinions of fields adjacent to mine. Mm -hmm. So I get it. what historians do, what sociologists do, and what different, even, you know, art historians or whatever. Like I can, I can put together the conversations happening in their field at a quick, quicker rate than I did 
you know, 15 years ago. Mm. I should. That's part of my (laughs) dream. Um, But how do I explain to, you know, um, some company, hey, um, like I'm an idea person. I I have an endless... (laughs) Like I'm super creative. I I have a lot of data, like a yeah. lot. <laughs> Pay me for my to... thoughts. <laughs> yes, and I can I can put I can put ideas together. I have ideas about all kinds of things, and I can help you with your ideas. <laughs> uh, I think we have a problem in academia also that we we have a bit of a PR problem actually, mm-hmm. and that we don't necessarily think about ways to engage in conversations broadly with the public for what we do. So I don't think the average person really understands beyond they know that universities exist and professors teach those courses. Right. But what what someone like me can do can can talk about yeah. <laughs> Satan and the popular imagination in terms of how it relates to politics and South Park. I think that's a skill somehow. You know, maybe. <laughs> We're going to have to get you a, a screenwriting class too then because then you can really yeah. ease right into South Park. <laughs> I fucking I thought like afterwards like I was like I I need to do the 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 thesis first obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, ideally I would just take one of those I was thinking about it like a creative writing or screenwriting course that you can buy online, you know. <laughs> if it wasn't too expensive, shit. Uh, I think that would be fun just for my own purposes yeah. to do something else. Just on my own time. To have a a thought outside. A fucking hobby, you know? (laughs) Some people have plants. I just need something. I need something. Honestly, one of my students the other day said, yeah, you're kind of looking like that stressed out guy. (laughs) Like, Like, thanks. Thanks, because that's what I need to hear. Yeah, Yeah. no, but I kind of looked at her like, yeah, no, no, don't do this. Like, don't. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm in hell. Run. Run. We're all losing our minds right now. Like, the pressure is intense. Oh, well, it's also been fun. It's been fun. I can't yeah. say it's with it. I, it. Sounds like it. It's like, okay, so like, even when you, even if you, because you were in the military, right? Yeah. Like, when you say whether it was worth it or not, like, I'm sure when you've been on a, in the middle of a hike in the desert and you're carrying whatever 50 pounds and you want to vomit because it's terrible and maybe under gunfire like you go through some shit it's very difficult it's a good comparison yeah you know because like you're in it, in hindsight it's like oh that yeah. helped me grow as a human being and i appreciate the training and the knowledge but when you're in it man yeah. you're in it you're in it it's hell yeah exactly and it, yours involves actual life threatening incidents <laughs> Uh, but the, the, uh, you know, like my daily experience in grad school doesn't, um, directly threaten my life. But when you, anytime you do something difficult, like, yeah, there's always this, was it worth it? I, I always, (laughs) I always fall now, now after having gone through very difficult things to Mm -hmm. get this PhD done, think, you know what? I can have insight into the world without experiencing that much pain. Like I, I think I'm smart, (laughs) creative enough. To imagine yeah. without having to experience that much hardship. <laughs> like I'm good. I I can figure it out. Wow. Uh well everyone watching, um maybe take a second thought about the PhD exercise. <laughs> Cause it can drive you crazy apparently. Like you just go nuts. You end up with PTSD yeah. from your study. 
That's what the P and PhD stands for is PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> oh many, man. Many people do. I don't want to discourage I shouldn't. I mean, you shouldn't no. talk to grad students about that. Um I I always actually tell my students now, like I say, well, look, if you if you're considering grad school, you should take a lot of different opinions. Mm -hmm. And I will talk about what it means when you go into grad school with no money, even if you have funding. Yeah. Like so even if I have funding, well, you know. Uh, once I got sick, none of that mattered. And then it's been this scramble for survival ever since. And because you sort of take a pause out of society, you're not building equity, you're not saving, you're not, um, you know, you're not eligible for disability or medical or like a, you know, a sick leave, because mm -hmm. none of those social programs exist because of your student status, even though I was working full time the whole time. Um, I never stopped. <laughs> it's this constant grind. But because you your the your social status is student, um, it it creates all kinds of problems. Whereas if you go to Scandinavia, you're considered an employee. Yeah. Like and that they're investing in you and like uh, training you to be a professor. So it's a very different approach, and uh, they have <clears throat> a better. It's harder to get in, but they have a much better success rate for um, the whole <laughs> the whole thing. Wow. Well, this is going to have to require me to do some editing, I think. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's okay. I don't mind at all. I love talking to you. I just I just look at the time. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is the show. <laughs> I, I wish you the best. Thanks. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like, I'm sorry. This, this... Oh, my God. And that's why I was like, I, I almost didn't even want to want to record i was like oh shit oh. i'm like right in the middle of like yeah. Jesus, i won't be able to not complain about grad school <laughs> but people should know people should fucking well know. thank you very much for taking time i do genuinely appreciate it and i love to hear the insights and i think <laughs> other people are going to as well so thank you very much fuck uh, this shouldn't air maybe maybe <laughs> maybe you should just not <laughs> Maybe you should only post it like after I finish. So that, like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, um, <laughs> I wish you the best luck again, and Thanks. I hope that we can, you know, in some other capacity, hang out like this again because I always yeah. love spending time with you. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, until then, hail Satan. Bye. All right, that's gonna do it. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I know it was a long one. I do genuinely appreciate you. You know, producing this show has been a challenge for me. As I burp, sorry about that. Producing this, I could have edited that out. I chose not to. Um, it's been a challenge for me uh, because, first of all, this is the second recording of this entire show. Um, but mostly because returning to this place that is producing Nine Cents it reminds me why I stopped it <laughs> because it is such a challenge to produce, to be able to, to riff in, in like some of my other projects is so much easier. Um, this is, this is a beast, but I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I will not be continuing this <laughs> in any form and I'm kind of probably done creating, you know, satanic content online anyway, but thank you for joining me for a nine cents anniversary. Um, after nine years, it's uh, still as powerful, I think, and the contributors are just as authoritative as ever. Thank you all who have supported Nine Cents and who have been asking for it to come back and continually asking me to bring back all of my projects. Uh, you're welcome, because here it is, <laughs> and uh, thank you. So.
Until next time, whenever that may be, hail Satan. <laughs>